0: And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. My name is Eric. It's great to see you guys this morning. Um, if I have not had the chance to meet you, I would love to do that. I am a pastor in training here uh, at City Church. Um, like we just read that passage from Matthew 17, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, we're going to get there in just a second. We're going to go through verses 22 through 27 and wrap that up. Um, But first, if you've been uh, following things that have been happening in the world right now, which there's no shortage of things to follow, but one of them uh, is you probably know uh, or have seen a little bit about some of the stuff that's happening with uh, Russia kind of invading, attacking parts of Ukraine. Um, We've talked a little bit about that side of things, but um, there's a lot we could talk about that relate to that. But I want to focus really quickly on uh, President Zelensky. He's the president of Ukraine. Um, so a lot of people have been really drawn to his, his leadership or his posture, the way that he is kind of conducting himself as things are, are going on. So you may have seen this or you may have heard this. At one point, the U.S. military offered to evacuate President Zelensky from Ukraine to basically help protect him. And in response, he said, the fight is here. I don't need a ride. I need ammunition, which is like super intense thing to say. And, and he has every reason to get out of there, right? Every right to go and try to like protect himself, especially since he is being targeted, but he's choosing to be present, and he's, he's choosing to lead and stay and do whatever needs to be done for the sake of his people and his country, regardless of the risk that puts him at. And that's something that a lot of people are inspired by, just that that attitude or that posture. And, and this morning, we are going to talk a little bit about I, what I think is the reason why People are so taken by that or anything like that. It's just a, an example that, that I think um, really, really comes, can be drawn out from what we're talking about this morning. So we're at a really interesting point in the book of Matthew. We are in chapter 17, like we said. So in p- the previous chapter, chapter 16, this marked a turning point in Jesus's ministry. Um, so Peter actually correctly identifies Jesus's identity, which is great. Right. Shout out to Peter for putting one on the scoreboard um, because he usually doesn't, (laughs) and so that's great. He did. He did a great job. So after that happens, um, Jesus then starts telling his disciples, "Hey, we got to start heading towards Jerusalem, uh, where I'm going to suffer, be killed, and then raised from the dead. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die, and then be raised from the dead." Um, Which, to put it mildly, is a huge buzzkill for the disciples, right? They are, they are super hype about everything. They finally identify who he is. He is the Messiah. They've confirmed it. Uh, just a couple weeks ago in, in the story, his identity was really solidified on the, on the mountaintop at the transfiguration when the literal voice of God the Father says, listen to Jesus. So we're picking up today after the transfiguration has happened. Uh, and after the story of Jesus healing the boy with epilepsy that we talked about last week. So now Jesus and his disciples are reconvening all together, and uh, they, they have gathered um, together in the same place. So we're going to look at Matthew 17. We're going to start in verse 22. Verse 22. It says, When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. So this is not the the main focus of what we're talking about today, but I want to talk about this really quickly. So we see right here Jesus repeat uh, what he said to his disciples in the previous chapter that we just talked about. He tells them, again, that the Son of Man, which is one of his uh, preferred titles for himself, is going to be killed and raised to life. Um, So remember how they responded the last time he did this? Does so anybody remember Peter's response when Jesus said he was going to be killed? Right? Je- Peter basically rebuked him. He was like, nah, not on my watch. Absolutely not. And then Jesus called him Satan. So that's how they responded the first time. Uh, but this time uh, we see him respond in a different way, right? They don't have this like big outburst as far as we can tell from the passage, but it says that they are filled with grief. And so there's a few reasons, I think, that they would, they would have responded this way. Uh, obviously, Jesus is a close friend of theirs at this point. And hearing that such a friend is going to be killed is a great way to harsh the mellow a little bit. Uh, but, like we said earlier, the disciples are now more convinced than ever that Jesus is the Messiah, the new king, the conquering king in their minds, fulfilling all of these prophecies. He's finally here. And now for the second time, he just told them all that he will not, in fact, be violently overthrowing the establishment, but he will actually be violently killed by the very ones that he came to save, right? And they are filled with grief. And while the disciples do have a better understanding of who Jesus is, we just saw that, um, I feel like this is another version of what we might call, um, or what we've been calling kind of on the staff side, dense disciple moments, where the disciples kind of like, sort of respond in, in the right way, but they're a little bit dense at times. So this is kind of a, a, a milder version of that because they know that Jesus is the Messiah. They, they do know that. They have confirmed that. But they still don't fully grasp what that means. They don't understand all the implications of that. He's told them what needs to happen. He says he's going to be raised back to life afterwards. But because of their expectations for what they think he should be doing, they're filled with grief grief. At the notion that he won't be doing it exactly how they want it. All right, so let's keep reading in verse 24, and then we're going to jump more into what we're talking about today. <clears throat> it says After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. So Capernaum where they all are right now, is kind of their home base of sorts uh, for Jesus and the disciples. It's actually where Peter is from. Uh, so they're most likely at Peter's house or at a house of one of his close relatives. Um, one, of, one of those things. But this is a very familiar place for them to be. And so we see some people come to them uh, to collect a temple tax, is what we see. So this tax is not a civil tax. Uh, this is not a tax that's due to the Roman Empire, who is ruling at the time. It's not a government tax, any of those things. This is a religious tax tax. This is a tax that, that helps fund the temple, uh, which was the religious hub of this region for Jews. And since the temple was so large and uh, such a big deal at the time, it required a lot of money to function. So they were collecting this, this money to help with that. So this is kind of, you can think of it sort of like um, like a religious version of an HOA fee, kind of. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a way of, like, giving money to this thing to kind of, like, recognize its importance, help fund what it's doing, all of that. Um, and it's it, it recognizing the importance and the necessity of the temple in Jewish life. Um, so, these temple employees that are coming up, this is not religious leaders. Uh, these are people who basically work for the temple. They come to Peter, and they ask if Jesus pays the tax. Um, so we, we, as modern readers, we, just, we tend to read through these stories kind of quickly or start to finish and, and don't think of uh, all the, the things that may be implied uh, to the original readers and things that we don't pick up at first glance. But this is a pretty tense moment. Um, like we just said, the temple is the center of religious culture at the time in this region. It's a big deal. And so these, these guys are coming to Peter and they're saying, does your rabbi, your teacher, the one who has been pretty outspoken against the religious establishment of the time, does he contribute to helping the temple function? So Peter's in a kind of awkward spot, right? It's a a little bit of a tense situation. And so Peter, my my dear, sweet, wildly overconfident Peter, uh, in his complete inability to handle conflict, speaks up. He's like, yeah, of course he does. So, he boldly answers a question he does not, in fact, know the answer to. (laughs) He has no idea. Haven't we all been there? Right? Uh, I used to do this all the time, uh, which is not great. I say used to because I've worked on it a lot. But I I had a really hard time saying I don't know to any question, Uh, whether it was, like, a definition of a word or, like, a reason for a rule or or anything like that, Uh, even, like, directions that like strangers would ask me. I could not say, I don't know. And so I would just answer, like anything, anything at all. Um, And it became problematic, obviously, uh, especially when people found out I had no idea what I was talking about. Um, And so I've been working on this because it is particularly frustrating to my wife, Sarah, when she asked me a question and I'm like, oh, here's an answer that I just made up. Um, And she took my word for it, which is good, but that's my fault for doing it like that. Um, So I've grown a lot in that, but it's something that I I can relate to Peter in this situation. Um, So let's keep reading. uh, So Peter has just had this interaction, and then it says, When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. So it starts off right there, when Peter came into the house. So Peter wasn't even with Jesus a second ago when he answered this question, right? And when he gets inside, Jesus initiates the conversation. So I don't know if Jesus overheard this thing that went down outside or if he had like a moment of divine intuition, any of these things, and he's just aware of what happened. But this is a really funny scene in my mind. I love these interactions between Peter and Jesus. I like to think of Peter like saying that outside and then realizing. He's like, hmm, maybe answered that a little too quick. And then he gets into the house and he's like, don't look at Jesus, don't look at Jesus, don't look at Jesus. <laughs> and then Jesus goes, what do you think, Pete? <laughs> he's like, oh, man. Uh, so Jesus, Jesus calls him out basically or asks him a question. He takes things for a bit of a turn. So, Jesus shifts into a teaching illustration, and he poses a question about rulers collecting taxes from their subjects. So, he asked Peter a question. would have been a really obvious answer at the time. So, when, when rulers or kings or anybody like that collected tax from their subjects, other members of the royal family were considered part of the king's household, right? They're not subjects. And so, Jesus is probably like, hey, over in the palace, you think Caesar makes his 12-year-old son pay taxes? You know, sends a tax collector in, collector in, smash the piggy bank, take his cut. And Peter would be like, no, of course not. He didn't do that. It's ridiculous. Um, this is kind of similar to uh, what I would, I think is similar to kind of the idea of a family business today. So I don't know if you've ever been a part of a family that, that owns a business uh, or you know anyone that has, but it's basically the equivalent here of being able to say, like, yeah, my dad owns a place, right? So my wife, Sarah, has, has told me some great memories that she has had, or that she had as a kid, of a kid in her class growing up whose parents owned a bunch of Domino's pizza locations. And you better believe that kid helped throw some dope parties for the class, right? All the pizza you could dream of. And it was just a general understanding. If this kid was there, pizza is going to be there. (laughs) Absolutely. No questions asked. And they owned an ice cream shop too. This is like every kid's dream, right? But it was just this understanding that this kid was going to be there. He was going to bring pizza. It was going to be covered. It's taken care of, right? It's family business. His parents own the place. So Jesus points out The children of rulers are not required to pay these taxes. And he says the children are exempt. So you got to read a little bit between the lines uh, with this. So Jesus' implication with all of this is that he is exempt from paying the temple tax because he is a son of God the Father. Right, And the temple is the Father's house. So With our modern lens, like I said, uh, and our understanding of Scripture as a whole, it can be easy to gloss over some stuff that's going on, but I want us to pay close attention to what's actually happening here and just how significant it really is. We have heard Jesus talk about his father periodically, and we tend to just accept it as commonplace. It's just a thing that Jesus does. It's how he talks about God, but you need to realize up until this point, no other religious leader or teacher has ever referred to God as their father right? This, this is a big deal. Jewish tradition puts God at an unbelievably high position, and rightly so, right? They elevate Him to the point where even, even one individual, only one, get, got to go into the innermost part of the temple every year, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelt. It's a big deal. And even then, They could only do that after following all the ceremonial practices, doing all the sacrifices, everything they needed to do. See, God is the creator of the universe, King of kings, Lord of lords, and they revered Him so highly for it. But Jesus has been referring to Him as Father. That's a big deal, right? So Jesus is saying, hey, I'm a son of the Father, and you are also considered sons of the Father. We're family, right? My dad owns the place basically. Now, Jesus could have ended it right there. Uh, Not pay the guys, gone on his merry way, right? He just had a conversation with Peter. That's exactly what he said. He said he could do that. He had every right to do that. Every right not to pay the temple tax. He and his disciples had all the freedom in the world not to do that. But it's not where he stops. And this is where the story takes uh, a bit of a bizarre An unexpected turn, I think. So, let's keep reading. Uh, We're going to finish it out, verse 27. But, so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. So, this is super interesting. What did he just say? So that we what? May not cause offense. That should cause all of us to do a bit of a double take, right? So we may not cause offense? Peter's probably thinking like, I don't know how to tell you this, buddy, but we have wildly offended a lot of people. (laughs) This is too late for that. That ship has sailed, right? When has Jesus ever actively avoided causing offense? And especially people who are associated with the religious establishment or the religious leaders of the time. Just a few chapters later, in fact, we're going to read, Jesus is in this temple flipping tables over and cracking a whip to drive out merchants who are changing money for this tax. That feels pretty offensive. (laughs) right? So, So clearly, Jesus has no issue with doing things that seem offensive when the situation warrants his response. But here, we see that sometimes he chooses not to when causing offense is not actually necessary in order to communicate truth, right? This has huge implications. We're going to get there in a second, but but we're going to finish unpacking what I think is the most uh, odd part of this passage, personally. Jesus tells Peter to go do something miraculous, or at the very least, something very coincidental, Right? He says, go catch a singular fish. Open its mouth, find a coin that covers exactly your and my tax amount. So a few details make this confusing. Uh, First, Peter was a fisherman by trade. Um, No fisherman who has any desire to be productive uses a line to catch a single fish over a net to catch as many as possible. Right? If he's like, well, if we're going to get money out of a fish, we might as well catch like a 1,000 of them, right? And so second, as far as we can tell, based on this passage, all of the disciples are in Capernaum together. It's not just Peter and Jesus. So money to cover two people is not going to cover the entire text. Third, um, this is where the story ends, right? Nowhere in Scripture does it actually say that Peter did it, that he went and caught a fish with money in it. And if he did, it'd be the only miracle that Jesus talks about doing without actually doing it, or without there actually being an account of him doing it. Uh, And fourth, if it was done, then it would be one of the only miracles performed uh, both in private and that was self-serving to some degree, right? It would not have been in in an attempt to display his authority or his divine nature. It would have just been to cover the cost of this tax. Um, So many scholars have different opinions on what this all means, Uh, But several that I read actually agree and share the same conclusion, and it's fantastic, in my opinion. It brings so much humanity and so much uh, realness to the personhood of Jesus. So the, the illustration of finding something valuable inside a fish was actually a pretty common literary tool used at the time. At this point in history, it was often used to serve as a description of how God provided or how everything just worked out in the end. It's a common literary device. Uh, a close modern equivalent would be kind of the idea of like digging through your couch cushions or like under the seat of your car to get some change to cover the cost of something. It's like that's a, that's a similar illustration of what it would be done or what would be done. So, so several scholars conclude It is likely that Jesus is referencing just a common trope at the time to highlight how he and the disciples really don't have much money to speak of, if any at all, right? He's basically saying to Peter, according to some scholars, hey, we'll pay the tax. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, Kind of short on cash, so better go get one of those money fish. (laughs) And it's just like, in my opinion, it's just so funny to see Jesus like cracking a joke with his, with his buddies. Um, it just gives them this, just a great sense of humor, in my opinion. But in any case, what we come away with is that Jesus and his disciples decide to pay the tax. That is the important part that we get out of this, regardless of where they came up for the money. And the most significant part, as we mentioned earlier, was actually the reason why they paid. So, there we have it. Jesus talks about death and taxes. Nice and simple. The only two inevitable things in life. Um, So, what does that mean for all of us? Well, I can tell you for certain one thing it doesn't mean is that none of us have to pay taxes. All right? If that's the answer that you've been waiting for, you've got your answer. You still got eight days to file. Um, Not five, like a lot of you thought, extension this year. Anyways, tax day's coming up. I just did mine. what, what I want us to do is take a closer look here at Jesus' posture and his response to this situation. We said we know without a shadow of a doubt, uh, Jesus has no qualms about causing offense in certain situations. We know that. And we also know from this passage that Jesus does not see it as his obligation or an obligation on him to pay the temple tax. He has made it clear that he can claim an exemption from it. He has every right not to pay. He has complete freedom not to pay this temple tax. But what does he do? He chooses to pay it anyways. Right? And he does it, he says, as a means of not causing offense or not stirring up drama or not making life harder for these people who are here just doing their job. So Jesus... In this story, is actively and deliberately choosing to lay aside his freedom. Right? He is saying he is willing to lay aside his rights in order to serve others or to serve another purpose. Right? I think Jesus is giving us an example of a way to live that feels incredibly countercultural, especially in today's world. This has huge implications in many areas of life. Jesus here is modeling a posture that is absolutely central to how we need to be thinking about our lives as followers of Jesus, and that's that there are situations where we lay down our rights and our freedoms for the benefit of others, right? There are situations where we lay down our rights and lay down our freedoms for the benefit of others, there is such a thing as a situation where you have the right or the freedom to not do something, but you choose to do it anyway, right? And Jesus here makes it abundantly clear. He has every right, more right to not pay the temple tax than we probably have had the right to do anything, but he chooses to do it. That attitude is not the norm, especially in 2022 America. All right, let me give you some quick examples of what I mean. Imagine with me briefly uh, that you are watching a TV show tonight. And in the middle of the show, it gets interrupted by a breaking news story. Uh, this example relies heavily on network television and not streaming, so just bear with me. <clears throat> they still do this, I've, I've been told. Um, but <laughs> in this report, let's say your show gets interrupted. In this report, uh, the news anchor says that there have been several studies done uh, on nutrition, and food distribution across Tennessee, and now the conclusion is that everybody should shop exclusively at Food City in order to help everybody out. Now, I don't know about you, but in this response, my, res- my personal response uh, would be just to chuckle all the way to Kroger, right? <laughs> because you can't tell me where to shop. Come on. Besides, I've got way more fuel points at Kroger. Um, And five times fuel points on gift cards, come on. But I have every right to shop wherever I want. Even if it may be helpful to somebody else in some way, I I don't know. I'm going to at least bristle at the thought of somebody telling me that I should go to Food City over something else. So this is obviously a fictitious example. Um, at least I hope it stays that way, right? I don't ever want to be confronted with this reality. Uh, but this kind of thing happens all the time, right? Just, just think about conversations that happen in America today. Think about any conversation that has surrounded mask recommendations over the last couple years and different responses. Think about the debates on, on public school versus private school and any argument surrounding anything to do with guns in America, Think about how people respond. The idea of personal rights and freedoms is the framework for our society. And and sometimes it feels like it is the only lens that we see cultural issues through, right? We think, does this give me more freedom or less freedom? And to many people, anything that does not fall in line with the more freedom side is at best a bad idea, and at worst, it's just downright evil and un-American right? Our society constantly bombards us with the idea that you and your preferences as an individual take precedence over everything else in your life, right? You and your preferences are what matter most. But we just read a story where Jesus is very clearly stating what his rights are in a situation, and then he immediately says that he is going to lay those aside for the sake of someone else. And this concept comes up for us as followers of Jesus, not just from, from Jesus' mouth. It comes up very clearly later in the New Testament. So look with me at Galatians chapter 5. We'll put it up on the screen. On the screen, excuse me. It says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Indulging the flesh uh, could mean all sorts of things, right? And I am sure every person in this room, myself included, could come up with, a pretty convincing argument as to why my preferences don't count as indulging, indulging the flesh, right? you would be like, "Ah, oh, this is a bit of a stretch, indulging the flesh. But it's so easy to get caught up in distractions like that and just miss entirely what the passage is telling us. It's the part after that that really matters for us. It says, to serve one another humbly in love. This passage is not saying, hey, what do you have the right to do? It's saying, what can you lay down or lay aside to serve others? What can I lay down? What can I lay aside to serve others? If any point along the way, or if at any point we reference freedom as a reason to not serve another person, we have completely missed the point. In fact, if we at any point use the word freedom to describe something that only benefits you and ignores or neglects the call to serve others, you may be describing American freedom. You are certainly not describing biblical freedom, right? Because biblical freedom, Christian freedom, according to Galatians 5, is for the purpose of serving others, even to the detriment of our own preferences and our own desires, Right? Jesus consistently put this on display for us. So what does this look like? What does it look like in our lives specifically? So many of us are in different stages of life, different circumstances, different situations, but every single one of us as a follower of Jesus is called to model this same attitude, the same attitude that Jesus had. So uh, married people in the room, Uh, You have every right, every right to use your home as a private sanctum, an insular place where you can shut the door, you can shut out the outside world, everything that comes with it. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you can actually regularly use your home as a means of loving and caring for others, right? You can open your door to people in your life who may not have family around, right? Family dinner does not have to only apply to people who live in your house, right? Or maybe it can even look like opening your home to someone to live with you, to be a part of life in your home. Day in, day out, you can use your home as a place to make people feel loved and cared for a place for people to feel completely welcome with nothing to prove. Parents in the room, you have every right to keep a strict bedtime schedule and private routine with your kids every single night of the week. But uh, you could also use your freedom at times to invite other people into your routines, invite people into your family time, even if it does occasionally interfere with bedtime and routines. So I knew a family back in South Carolina who, whenever they had people over at their house and it was bedtime for their kids, they would stop everything that they were doing, and they would invite everybody who was there to join in with them. Right? If you were over at their house and it was bedtime, it was like, all right, we're all doing bedtime. We're doing the whole routine together. Let's go. They would walk through the whole process. They'd, they'd sing a song, read a story, they'd pray, they'd brush their teeth. Not, all, not that part altogether. They would watch the child brush their teeth. Pass the toothbrush around. No, uh, no they wouldn't do that part. The, but, but everyone would participate in the whole bedtime routine together. And sure, it took longer with a couple people who were not normally a part of that routine. But they felt like it was worth it to bring people into their life and into their routines. This is something that, that uh, Sarah does too. My, my wife occasionally will be over at Kitnana's house or at other, other people's house with kids. I just say Kitnana because it's probably there more often than not. Um, and sometimes she'll ask if she can go through the bedtime routine with the kids uh, instead of them so that they have a break for the night and she gets to walk through that with the kids. And sure, sometimes that can disrupt the schedule, that can make things potentially take longer, be different than it normally is, but it's worth it to, to help mingle our lives together as followers of Jesus and serve one another. Single people in the room, um, you've got every right to go out you know, every, every night or every weekend or, or stay out late with other people, but you could also... Use your freedom to maybe spend, spend quality time with people who don't have as much freedom in their schedule as you to be out in the evenings, right? You could go have a, at least according to some people, boring night with someone in your life group who can't leave the house after a certain time, maybe because their kids are asleep or for other reasons. It could look like joining in those routines of, of helping maybe prepare a meal in someone else's house. You get to go join in and do that. Or that can be a means of you helping serve them or, or just being together. Uh, we had our whole life group over uh, recently to our house uh, a few weeks ago um, for a game night. It was great. We had single people, married people, parents with kids, and our dog. And it was beautiful, it was crowded. Uh, our house is not tiny, but 17 adults and four kids and a 60-pound lab in one living room. is a little crowded. Uh, but the best part was nobody was hands-off, right? Everybody had the understanding we're here together. We're here to be with each other, but we're also here to love and serve each other. Sure, we're having a good time, but if a toddler comes across the room or across the house, you're on kid duty now, Right? Is that required? No. No, it's not. But you better believe every person in that room, married, with kids, single, it didn't matter. Every person in that room was willing to take full responsibility, full responsibility for them and to love all of the kids that were in there. Right? Those people, everyone there had every right to be anywhere else. Or they could have been there and just totally ignored that because they'd be like, it's not my kid, it's not my problem. But that's not what people did. We like to describe it sometimes as a difference between like man-to-man defense and zone defense. So it's like parents run man-to-man, but when we're all together, we're all in this. We're running zone. Everybody's watching the kids, right? So people were willing to and choosing to lay aside Maybe their preferences, some of their rights, some of their freedoms to be present and to be invested in each other's lives, even if it meant disrupting bedtime. Maybe it meant being a little crowded. Maybe it meant watching kids when you don't have to. But people were willing to do that. Right? Uh, All of us, especially according to the world standards, have every right to use our money and our resources in whatever way we want to. We have every right. We can rest easy at night knowing that that number in our savings account or our retirement or our portfolio, whatever it is, is going up. As long as it's going up, we're good. Or we could look for ways to sacrificially provide for other people's needs. We can serve others, even if it means maybe this month you're not putting as much into savings as you were planning or hoping. Right uh, Maybe it means postponing that vacation to help somebody else in your life group or, or in our church, or maybe it could even mean taking someone on vacation with you to love on them because you know that it's not something that they would have been able to do otherwise I've also seen some really cool examples of uh, I've plenty of our life groups throughout the history of our church over time, uh, groups who have had maybe rhythms of going to local breweries to hang out or having a couple beers in the backyard, whatever it looks like. But anytime someone in those life groups, if they brought up that they wanted to be more involved or they wanted to be around more of the social stuff that was happening, but historically had an unhealthy relationship with alcohol or being around alcohol was difficult for them, I saw groups that were more than willing to completely change their rhythms, Right, they were willing to use their freedom to serve someone in their group instead of using it as a means to serve their own preferences or their own desires. Right? How beautiful is that? That's great. Um, here's an interesting example. Uh, as hard as it may be for some people in this room to believe, early on in our church's history, we had almost no college students. We had one, literally one. And we only had her because she graduated from high school and stuck around. (laughs) We had one college student. In fact, we were almost one demographic completely across the board when we first started out. One age demographic. But we were consistently praying for the Lord to bring more and more people from from all demographics to get more involved. And we had a couple of college students who, who said that they believed in what we were doing. And they wanted to commit to being some of the first and only students at the time that we had around because they had a desire to see those numbers grow. And they wanted to be a part of welcoming other people like them. They could have easily gone to any number of different churches in the area that would have plenty of things specifically tailored to attract college students. Or maybe places with, with event after event that was super exciting and high energy and something that they wanted to be a part of. But they were willing to lay aside their preference for maybe a larger contingent of college students in order to serve others who would come after them. They wanted to serve them by being the first ones. And if you look around the room most weeks, you can see how faithful the Lord has been. And using those people and their willingness to serve to help create a space where students feel welcome and seen and loved. Some of you right now in the room may be older than the average age of our church, and you may be doing the exact same thing right now. You are setting aside your freedom to be a part, you're, you're, setting, you're setting aside your freedom to be a part of the church where... Uh, you could be somewhere where people are in, more people are in your stage of life, but, but God has already used what you are doing here to help grow us as a church, to help us mature as a church family. Many of you are doing the same thing as ethnic minorities. God is using that, right? It is amazing to see what God can do when his people decide to lay down their rights and their freedoms to serve others. It is amazing to see, and the list could go on and on. We could give examples all day. These are just a few examples of what it looks like to lay down some some of your rights and some of your freedoms for the benefit of others. And if we're followers of Jesus, that is precisely what He is calling us to. That is what He is calling us to. Whether, we are, whether or not we have seen tangible fruit from it yet, it is still how we are called to live. And the reason that we do this is not just because it's a good thing, right? It's not even just because Jesus told us to do it. It is first and foremost because it is what Jesus himself did. It is what Jesus did. Look back at the beginning of our passage in verses 22 and 23. It says, the Son of Man, again, that is Jesus talking about himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Do you think that Jesus, God in the flesh, had the right or the freedom to say no to the cross? course he did, right? That's part of the beauty of it, that Jesus laid aside more freedom than we will ever know or that we will ever dream of for the sake of others, right? Jesus does not leverage his freedom for his own convenience, and he does not leverage his freedom at the expense of anyone else, right? Paul sums this all up, beautifully, I think, in Philippians chapter 2. This is where we're going to end today. Um, We'll put it up on screen for you, starting in verse 3. Paul said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, Jesus is willing to restrict and inconvenience himself for the sake of others, right? For my sake, for your sake. That is our example. Jesus is our example for that posture. And, and that is my prayer today for all of us that we continue to become individuals, but also become a group of people who more and more resemble this posture of Jesus in the way that we live. Right, let's pray together. God, um, first, we just want to acknowledge um, <clears throat> who you are um, and just the the magnitude of your glory um, and and with that that position the 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 word freedom doesn't even begin to d- describe what you have the capacity to do anything and everything is yours. and we want to acknowledge that and thank you for. For what you demonstrated in in sending Jesus. Um, Laying aside everything um, for our sake. Laying aside all of your freedoms, all of of your rights that you had to, to be distant from us, to be removed. But instead, you wanted to—you wanted to bridge that gap for us, for our sake, and you were willing to go to any length, even death on the cross, for our sake. And I pray that we can continue to grow in our understanding of what that means and the implication that has on our lives, and the the length that you have gone to reach us, and that that would just even begin to shape our hearts to be more like you. That that would begin the process of us understanding just how much you laid aside for our sake. And we can see that as a picture, as an example of, of the things that we can start to do and the way that we can start to shape our lives to, to resemble that posture, that we can look for things in our own lives to lay aside for the sake of others. Both so we can love others and so that we can put your love on display for them. Thank you that we have the opportunity to do that. Thank you that we have a reason and an example to look to for that. And in in all the ways that we fail, we ask that you will continue to sustain us and continue to, to refocus our eyes and our hearts on you. That, that people would come to know you for the first time through the ways that we love them because of how you have loved us. Yeah, we pray all this in your name.